You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hello, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today we're going to finish up talking about Domain 3 as we are working through basically a study guide for the CPT-7. Study guide for people who are studying for the test. Fantastic. You're going to love it. You're going to find a few pointers, things that will be really helpful, maybe hopefully clarifying some content and ideas. And for those of you who are already NASM CPT certified, you are certified personal trainers. Hopefully this will still be beneficial. You can listen to this, learn from it, uh, things that maybe weren't clear to you in the beginning, and maybe you passed it in the test and you didn't. Sometimes you lose things, you forget things, and sometimes you just get into a regular practice and being reintroduced to some content and concepts allow you to go, oh yeah, maybe I can do that and work with that with the clients that I have or with a particular client. Well, I think this one's going to come in handy because today we're going to be uh, talking about posture movement and performance assessments. This one's a big deal for NASM. And that's why the assessment, you've got 16% of the test that comes from assessments. We did part one previously about health, wellness, and fitness assessments. And then we move into these assessments today, our posture assessments, movement assessments, and performance assessments. Let's start with posture and movement. There's static posture, dynamic posture, and then we want to look at optimal movement patterns. So let's get into understanding this a little bit more. Let's look at muscle imbalances. Muscle imbalances are alterations in the lengths of muscles surrounding a joint. So we oftentimes talk about overactive muscles and underactive muscles. The overactive muscle is a muscle that's working a bit more that forces a compensation to occur. So if I've got, uh, well, let's look at underactive. Underactive is allowing the compensation to occur. So maybe it's not strong enough to keep the compensation from occurring. And if we look at something maybe like an anterior pelvic tilt, so the low back arches, the backside sticks out, the front of the pelvis is tipping forward, the pubic bone is going away from the front of the body, the top of the pelvis is going towards the front of the body, then you've got some muscles that might be tight. Think about your hip flexors forcing you into that position. Those could be overactive muscles. And then your glutes, which would, if they were strong enough, would keep you from going into that position. So there's an example of overactive and underactive muscles that could be taking place and that lead to postural malalignment. So there's some postural assessments that we do, and we'll look at some static assessments initially. And static assessments are gonna provide insights into deviations from optimal alignment of the body in a standing posture. And what we look at regularly are what are called the five kinetic chain checkpoints. So the 5KC, or the 5K sometimes, as I would just talk about it in coursework, what are your five kinetic chain checkpoints? And here they are. We're going to start number one. We will work from the bottom to the top. So the first kinetic chain checkpoint, feet and ankles. Second kinetic chain checkpoint, knees. Third checkpoint, lumbopelvic hip complex, lumbar spine, the pelvis, and the hip joint. 
They work together. They're oftentimes referred to as the lumbopelvic hip uh, complex or the LPHC. Moving up, shoulders. And that's not just the shoulder joint, but that's, those are the shoulder blades as well. So that entire shoulder girdle. And then the fifth one is the head and the neck. So one more time, five kinetic chain checkpoints, foot and ankle, knees, LPHC, the lumbopelvic hip complex, shoulders, and head and neck. Those are our five kinetic chain checkpoints. We'll continue to use those five kinetic chain checkpoints and help us to identify some other things that are going on in the body. For instance, in the static positions, we're going to look at something called pes planus distortion syndrome. What'd you say? What was, what was that? Pes planus. Pes planus. Flat foot. We're looking at flat foot distortion syndrome. So pes planus. In static positions, here's what you're going to look at. The ankle joints will be the first thing. Pes planus or a collapsed arch. Right? When you look at the ankle, you look at the feet, you'll see them maybe abducting, so the toes pointing out from the midline, the arch collapsed a bit. And then with that, usually what happens is that the knee joints in a static position will go into what's called a valgus or a knocked kneed position. So they are rotating internally or medially where they start to face each other instead of facing straight ahead. And then the hip joints, in order for your knee to go into that position, is going to go into adduction and internal or medial rotation. So in the static pes planus position, you're going to look at ankle joints. We have pes planus or collapsed arch. We have knees, which will be in a valgus or internally rotated position, and the hip joint, which will be adducted and internally rotated. Then from the pes planus distortion, let's look at some potential overactive muscles. Potential overactive gastroxoleus complex, so your calves, the adductor complex, the hip flexors, those are potential overactive muscles in pes planus distortion syndrome. Potential underactive muscles, Potential underactive, the ones that are so are not stopping the pes planus from taking place. They're not strong enough to do that. Could be the anterior and posterior tibialis and the gluteus maximus and medius. So let's review it one more time. Pes planus distortion syndrome, overactive muscles, potential overactive muscles, gastrocnemius and soleus, the adductors, and the hip flexors, potentially overactive, pulling it into that position. The underactive muscles, potentially. The ones allowing those muscles to pull into this distortion syndrome are the anterior posterior tibialis and the glute max and medius. So gluteus maximus, gluteus medius, and pes planus distortion syndrome. Let's look at lower cross syndrome. Lower cross syndrome is one of the things that I talked about when I said we had an anterior pelvic tilt. So it's an anterior pelvic tilt and an excessive lumbar lordosis or an arch in the low back. That's going to be the, you know, the, the, the two-headed monster here, the, the two major components that go along with what's called a lower cross syndrome, anterior pelvic tilt, and an arch, an excessive lumbar, lumbar lordosis or an arch in the lower back. So in a static position, the hips are flexed, but 
your feet are on the ground. So what that means is that instead of pulling the femur up in a flexed position, you keep your legs straight and then you just bend forward like a, like a very gentle hamstring stretch. That is a hip flexed position. The pelvis is anteriorly tilted, but because we don't walk around in that position where our whole body is pitched forward, the pelvis stays there, but we lift our body up by arching our low back so we're standing upright, but we're still in an anterior pelvic tilt position. That is lower cross syndrome. Potential overactive muscles in this would be hip flexors and lumbar extensors. They are overactive and pulling us into that position. The potential underactive muscles, the ones not strong enough to fight against the hip flexors and the lumbar extensors to maintain neutral, might be the gluteus maximus and medius. It might be the hamstring complex. Might be the abdominal complex. So those are the potential overactive and underactive muscles. One more time, lower cross syndrome. We've got hips flexed, pelvis and an anterior pelvic tilt, and an arch or an excessive arch or lumbar lordosis in the lumbar spine. Potential overactive muscles, hip flexors, lumbar extensors, like the erector spinae. Potential underactive muscles, gluteus maximus, gluteus medius, hamstrings, and the abdominals. All of those muscles currently in an anterior pelvic tilt and an arched back or lower cross syndrome, the underactive muscles are in a lengthened position. Upper cross syndrome. This is another one. Sometimes I refer to this as office back. What you've got are rounded shoulders and excessive flexion in the thoracic spine known as a excessive thoracic kyphosis. So the arch in the lower back, which should be there, a slight arch in the lower back, is called a lumbar lordosis. It is an anterior facing curve. The thoracic spine is supposed to have a kyphosis, a post interior facing curve, but an excessive kyphosis is what we are concerned with. That excessive kyphosis can also lead to a forward head position. As we look at this rounded thoracic spine and a forward head, it reminds me a lot of people pounding away at keyboards, looking at screens, shifting their head forward, rounding their torso, their thoracic spine forward into this hunchback flexed posture, shoulders protracted, rounded forward, shoulder joint internally rotated, and the head and the neck jutting forward. One more time, thoracic spine, excessive kyphosis, hunchback or flex position, shoulders, shoulder blades are protracted, and the shoulder joint internally rotated, and then the head and neck are jutting forward. What are some of the potential overactive muscles in the upper crossed syndrome? Pec major and minor, causing that protraction in the shoulder blades. Levator scapula and sternocleidomastoid, creating that shift of the head forward and the upper traps can be a part of that as well. So pec major, pec minor, levator scapula, sternocleidomastoid, and upper traps. Are these all of the potential muscles that are there? No, I think this is a good list. The thoracic extenders would be a part of that as well as we're in a thoracic flexed position. Potential underactive muscles would be muscles like the mid and lower traps and the rhomboids that are keeping the protracted, allowing the scapula to protract. Deep cervical flexors that are allowing the head to jut forward 
instead of keeping that chin in a chin tucked position. And again, these are potential underactive muscles. It is not an exhaustive list, but also if these things seem like something that would interest you in learning more about, then after you're done with your CPT, I would like to direct your attention to the Corrective Exercise Specialist product and course that NASM has, which is my favorite. So just throwing that out there, that's my favorite. But one step at a time, right? <laughs> Am I right? Uh, right? Let's talk about observing some dynamic postures. Dynamic posture observations is when we are looking at people move, and oftentimes it's the quickest way to gain an overall impression of a client's functional status. It's functional status because we're watching them move. Sometimes people can stand in awkward and weird positions and we watch them move and they move just fine. Sometimes that's not how it works. So watching people move is important because what we do is have people move. So I need to make sure that you are moving well. So we observe dynamic posture. And it should relate to basic functions like squatting, pushing and pulling, and being able to balance. That's what all of our dynamic postures should relate back to, these kind of basic functions that we have. And then it can also be incorporated as a first workout for your client. So we're doing exercises and things might be some things that we foam roll and stretch, but then we start to provide strength training to strengthen some of those underactive muscles and then exercises where everything can start working together as the orchestra starts to get back together. You've pulled out the trombones and you pulled out the, the bass, uh, the, the cello, and you're allowing all of these individuals to be worked on individually. But then we put it back together and we give a nice global full body exercise experience so that they can work together as an orchestra in harmony again. And that's what we want. We want everything to work in harmony. One of the ways we can do that, one of the assessments, and one of the assessments that we at NASM use as kind of an anchor assessment for so many of the things we do regarding what we call a movement or a transitional assessment is an overhead squat assessment. And this is designed to assess dynamic posture. We're moving. But while we're moving, we're also going to assess core stability. We're going to assess neuromuscular control of the whole body during a squatting motion and it's identify a client's muscle imbalances. It allows us to do that in a, in, in a very large scale or a global scale, high level. I can see a lot of things with just this one particular movement. I might stand from the front and watch some movement. I might stand on the side and watch some movement. And a lot of this information for you can be found in your textbook on pages 388 to 392. That's for the CPT-7. If you're CPT-6 or you're listening to this later and you've moved on to whatever CPT uh, you're listening to now, it is fine. Just those page numbers may be different. Check out what they are in, the, um, in your textbook. So let's talk about the overhead squat assessment. We're going to start with we're gonna start with starting position. First, let's have the client stand on a flat, stable surface. Their feet are going to be shoulder width apart and pointing straight ahead. Now, just note that this is shoulder joint width and not deltoid width. And we get some people with some big deltoids that are like, did you mean this far apart? I'm like, no, no, no. Bring it back in. Shoulder joint, which is really not that much wider than your hip joint. So just a little bit wider than hip position. Feet pointed straight ahead. Um, your foot and ankle complex should be in a neutral position. So usually we'll call that uh, 
our second and third toe pointing straight ahead. And ideally, the assessment should be performed with the shoes off to better view what's going on at the foot and ankle complex. If I can do a review of what's going on. I can see some movements take place and I go, oh, that's what's going on. And I spend a lot of time trying to correct it and it never does because I didn't see what was happening at the foot and ankle. And that could have been where the issue was primarily from. So the foot and ankle, it's better for us as practitioners to see them do this with their shoes off. All right. Um, the client should raise their arms completely overhead when they're doing this. So hence the overhead squat assessment. So arms go up overhead with their elbows fully extended. And I get some questions. Should the arms, hands face forward? Should they be thumbs pointed behind, pinkies facing forward? Uh, basically, that's just a um, radial ulnar supination or pronation. It doesn't change what's going on at the shoulder joint. So it's not that important in the grand scheme of things. All right, what about the movement now? I've got you in the start position. What do I have them do? All right, well, the movement, number one, the client should squat to a depth that brings the femur parallel to the ground. It's approximately chair height, and then have them return back to a starting position. The squat depth can be reduced if the client has discomfort or if they're not capable of performing squat to that depth. Well, and if they can, it doesn't hurt. They just like, I can't get down any farther. Ask them to try. And what you might see is an excessive forward lean or something else. So if we can get them to go into a squat, we can identify some other things that are going on in their body. But if we have anybody pretty much do a shallow squat, it will look perfect. So have them squat to chair depth or have their femurs be parallel to the, um, uh, to the ground, and that's the depth we're looking at. And the client's gonna repeat this movement for approximately five reps. Sometimes I have people do more, but five reps gives me a pretty good idea. So we'll say approximately five reps while the fitness professional views that client from both the front and the side, what we refer to as an anterior view or a lateral view. Well, what are we looking at in an anterior view? in the overhead squat assessment. Well, first, the feet should remain pointed straight ahead as if the client is on snow skis, um, neutrally on snow skis, or railroad tracks that are shoulder width apart, railroad tracks. Common movement impairment that you're gonna see is the feet externally rotating or they start to turn out. So the feet, the toes will turn out, the heels will be in. That's a very common movement impairment that we see. The other one is that the knee should track straight forward and remain over the second and third toe, the center of the foot. The common movement impairment that we're gonna see is something called knee valgus or the knees caving in, that knee knock position. So two things to be aware of there, feet turning out, knees turning in. Well, Rick, what if it's just one of those things? then it's just one of those things. Take a note, the feet turned out, take a note that the knees went into the valgus position and you just write it down. Just keep notes of those things. What about a lateral view? Lateral view in an overhead squat assessment, you're gonna look for three things primarily. One, you wanna see if there's an excessive forward lean. And what we commonly like to look for is something called a tibia torso angle, that when somebody squats, the line of the tibia and the line of the torso remain parallel. Well, when in an excessive forward lean, you might see the tibias remain straight up and down and the torso bends forward over that. So if we made these um, 
ongoing parallel lines from the shin and the torso, you would see that those lines would intersect. And the earlier they intersect, the more excessive the forward lean. So we're looking for an excessive forward lean. We're also looking to see if the low back arches excessively. So some people will squat down and as they squat, they go into an excessive arch in the low back. And then the other thing from a lateral view that you might look for is arms falling forward. So as they squat down, then the arm is flexed overhead, full flexion. But for some reason, when they squat, they go into a slight extension from that fully flexed position. Well, we want to identify what that is, why it's doing it, and we need to take notes if we see it happen. So let's look at the foot and ankle complex. Foot and ankle, anterior viewpoint, the movement impairment is the feet turnout. All right, possible muscle imbalances. Here's what we're gonna look at. Possible overactive muscles, gastrocnemius and soleus, the calves. Another thing would be the hamstring complex, particular one of the hamstrings, which would pull that laterally, causing the, the lower leg to rotate at the knee and cause the foot to follow, creating external rotation at the knee. That then creates the foot turnout position. Well, what are some of the underactive muscles? Could be the anterior and posterior tibialis, the muscles around the shin, the uh, tibia more specifically. And then we've got the glute max and the glute medius that could be part of this feet turn out position. So those would be underactive. Overactive gastrocnemius soleus and hamstring complex, the possible underactive muscle, anterior and posterior tibialis, glute maximus and medius. All right, let's look at the knee. Anterior view, valgus, they cave in. Possible overactive muscles will be the TFL, the tensor fascia lata. It's the muscle near the front of the hip. And then the adductor complex. Adductor complex, the muscles in the inner thigh, causing the adduction at the hip and the knees to cave in towards each other. What are some of the underactive muscles potentially in a valgus position, a knee valgus position specifically? So underactive muscles, glute maximus and medius, we keep saying that, we keep saying that. And then the anterior and posterior tibialis, hmm, that shows up again as well. One more time, in a knee knock position, the knee valgus position, knees cave in, possible overactive muscles, tensor fascia lata, the TFL, and the adductor complex, underactive muscles, glute maximus and medius, anterior and posterior tibialis. All right, lumbopelvic hip complex. When we talked about this, this is all from the lateral view now, the low back arches, potential overactive muscles in low back arches, hip flexors, like the rectus femoris, the psoas, the TFL, lumbar extensors, the low back muscles, latissimus dorsi, the large muscle in the back, that can be a part of the low back arch, especially with the arms overhead. If the low back arches, what are some of the underactive muscles? Could be the glute maximus. Could be the hamstring complex. Could be the abdominal complex. So we want to look at those. Let's repeat it one more time. Low back arches, when we're looking from a lateral view, we see the low back arch, overactive muscles, hip flexors, rectus femoris, psoas, TFL, lumbar extensors, muscles of the low back, latissimus dorsi. Underactive muscles for low back arches. Gluteus maximus, hamstring complex, and abdominals are potential muscles uh, that would be associated with that. 
again, from a lateral viewpoint, we're now going to look at excessive forward lean. So the trunk leans forward excessively. So we have parallel lines. And as people start to descend, the shin doesn't go forward that much. And the torso goes forward. And those lines would intersect as opposed to remain parallel. What are some of the overactive muscles here? Well, the hip flexors, gastrocnemius and soleus, calves, rectus abdominis, and external obliques, which are those superficial abdominal muscles. Those are over potential overactive muscles. Possible underactive muscles and an excessive forward trunk lean. The gluteus maximus, hamstring complex, and lumbar extensors, potentially underactive. One more time. Excessive forward lean, overactive muscles, potentially hip flexors, gastrocnemius and soleus, rectus abdominis, and external obliques. Underactive muscles potentially for an excessive forward lean, gluteus maximus, hamstring complex, and lumbar extensors. Here's something I want to answer for you because the question might be there. If I'm doing an excessive forward lean, why on earth are my calves considered to be tight? And that's because there's not enough dorsiflexion that takes place at the ankle. And if you don't get enough dorsiflexion, the shin can't move forward very well, or the knees can't move forward towards the toes, and that, uh, that forces the upper body to compensate by going into an excessive forward lean. So that's why the calves are part of that process of an excessive forward lean. Okay, next one, arms fall forward. Arms fall forward, overactive muscles, potentially are going to be the latissimus dorsi, pec major and minor, and the teres major, which is the lat's little brother. So anything that the lats do at the shoulder, the teres major wants to follow along and be just like his big brother. Underactive muscle. If you see the arms fall forward, then it could be underactive, middle and low traps, rhomboids, posterior deltoids, and maybe some portions of the rotator cuff, which are designed to stabilize the shoulder. So in an arms fall forward, one more time, overactive muscles, lats, and his little brother, Terry's major. Pecs major, and pecs major's little brother, I guess, uh, pec minor. So the pec major and pec minor could be considered overactive. Underactive would be mid and low traps, rhomboids, posterior delts, and portions of the rotator cuff. All right. Let's move on. We only have a few more to review. Let's go through a single leg squat assessment. What's a single leg squat assessment designed to do? Well, to assess dynamic posture, lower extremity strength and balance, and coordination while standing on one limb. We have that single leg stance. What's your start position? The client's going to stand flat on a stable surface with hands on the hips and their eyes focused straight ahead. The client's going to lift one foot about six inches off the floor. The stance foot, that stance leg, the ankle and knee, and the lumbopelvic hip complex, the LPHC, should be in a neutral position, pointed straight ahead. You can check this out in your textbook, pages 392 to 394 of your CPT-7. And again, if you're on a previous one or you've moved past into a future dates for later CPTs, they might be on different pages. So what do you do? What's the movement in the single leg squat assessment? Will you still keep the hands on the hips? and the client's gonna squat as deep as possible while maintaining balance, and then return back to an upright position. The depth of the single leg squat will be the client, be dependent on the client, and it's gonna vary across different people, different populations, and the client's gonna perform up to five repetitions before switching sides. 
and we want to look at that movement. We want to assess the movement. So what are we looking for? Anterior view only. We only look from the front. The knees should track forward and remain over the second and third toes, right in the center of the foot. A common impairment is going to be the same as it was with the two-legged stance. Knee valgus. The knees start to cave in, that knee knock position. Potential overactive muscles, if we see that, would be TFL and adductor complex. Potential underactive muscles would be glute max and glute medius, anterior and posterior tibialis very similar to what we saw in the previous. And that's one of the more common um, uh, movement uh, dysfunctions, so the malalignments that you'll see. So be aware of that particular malalignment. All right, let's look at pushing assessments. Pushing assessment for the upper body. The client should stand in a narrow split stance with the toes pointing forward, and maybe uh, we're looking at like a cable machine or bands. So you're going to have handles in each hand. And then you, as a CPT, a fitness professional, going to choose a resistance that's going to challenge them and not exhaust them so that they can do about 10 repetitions. And then let's get moving. You should instruct the client to push the handles away from the body and return to the starting position like a chest press. They're pushing anterior. Their hands are about shoulder levels, and they push all the way out, and their hands are still shoulder height. Then return back to the shoulders. I like to cue this as bringing the thumbs back towards the armpit. It's a good cue. It's a visual cue that they can see in their mind, even without looking down and seeing where their thumbs are. Then have them do this slowly and repetitiously. Have them perform five to 10 repetitions in a split stance. So do five in a split stance and then switch and do five in a split stance on the other leg. You can have them do additional repetitions if you need to. And we're just watching them move. As they press, we're looking for three things primarily. When they press forward, do the, does their low back arch? Do their shoulders elevate or shrug? And does the head jut forward? Those are three common things that we're going to see when people go through these pushing assessments. Now let's look at a pulling assessment. Same thing, cables or tubes, bands with handles in it, starting position. You're gonna stand in a narrow split stance position, feet pointing straight ahead, toes pointing straight ahead, one handle in each hand. And then you as the CPT, the fitness professional, are gonna choose a resistance that's challenging but not exhausting so that they can perform about 10 repetitions. And then what? Have them pull the handle toward their body and then return back to that start position. Slow controlled repetitions, keep that slow tempo, and then perform five repetitions if you're in a split stance, and then switch the leg that's forward and do five more repetitions. You can do additional repetitions as needed, but I wouldn't really do necessarily more than five additional reps. Um, so, I mean, if we're doing a heavy enough weight to challenge them, but still get 10 repetitions, asking them for 20 is probably not going to happen. So, if they can do a few more repetitions just so you can see a little bit better what's going on. Otherwise, have them take a break and reassess after they've kind of gathered themselves back together again. All right. From a lateral view, what are we looking at? I want to know if the low back arches, if the shoulders elevate, or the head juts forward. Very similar to what we saw in the pushing assessments. And these are things that tend to happen when people move and it gives us a very good idea of what we need to pay attention to. And there is a push-pull solutions chart. So 
in a push-pull solutions chart, kinetic chain checkpoint from a lateral view in a pushing assessment. If the LPHC, lumbopelvic hip complex, we see that happening in the low back arches, it might be hip flexors and lumbar extensors that are overactive, could be the glute, uh, glute maximus, hamstrings, and abdominals that are underactive. And a lateral view and a pushing assessment, the shoulder complex, if we see shoulder elevation, it could be the levator scapula and the upper traps, and the underactive muscles could be the lower traps and the mid traps. The head in a lateral view and a pushing assessment, if the head juts forward or protrudes forward, it could be the upper traps, the sternocleidomastoid, or the levator scapula. Underactive muscles might be the deep cervical flexors. What about pulling assessments? Now, pulling assessments, lateral view, the LPHC, so we see the lumbopelvic hip complex, the low back arches. What's a potential overactive muscle? Hip flexors, lumbar extensors, underactive muscles, gluteus maximus, hamstrings, abdominals, same. Shoulder complex from a lateral view and a pulling assessment. If the shoulders elevate or shrug, overactive muscles, potentially, levator scapula, upper traps, underactive muscles, lower traps. In a lateral view, if we see the head protrude forward, potential overactive muscles would be the sternocleidomastoid and the levator scapula, and then the underactive muscles, deep cervical flexors. That should be helpful because both of those pushing and pullings, the answers in the overactive, underactive solutions charts are very, very similar. All right. Let's talk briefly about performance assessments and we will wrap this up. Performance assessments measures overall strength, muscular endurance, power, and agility, depending on what you do. Basic performance assessments are gonna be these. Push-ups, push-up test, how many can you do? Bench press strength assessment, squat strength assessment, a vertical jump, a long jump, the left test or the lower extremity functional test, a 40-yard dash, a pro shuttle run. These are different types of performance assessment. And what's the benefit of conducting and implementing performance assessments? Well, assessing a client's static posture uh, allows for a quick understanding of how they position their body during the day. Movement and performance assessments demonstrate a baseline of the client's functional status in a wide range of tasks. And we looked at strength assessments and running assessments and shuttling assessments, agility assessments, jumping assessments. Movement assessments are helpful to identify and correct movement impairments with potential muscle imbalances. Strength-based assessments allow the fitness professional to accurately assess a client's maximal strength capacities. Performance assessments allow for careful tracking of athletic performance, whether that's power, speed, agility, or muscular endurance. Sequencing. Just like we had sequencing of our physiologic assessments when we talked about this earlier in the week, our previous episode, sequencing fitness assessment is important too. So uh, preparation, uh, getting them ready for what they're about to do, going through a health screening, then going into physiological assessments, then you can go into body composition assessments, then postural assessments. So whether that's static followed by movement and then cardiorespiratory assessments and then finish with performance assessments. So you might want to track and sequence in that direction. All right. With that being said, 
There are going to be some considerations and some modifications. If somebody is overweight or obese as a client, you want to be aware of what that is and how you can modify these assessments. The important thing is that you do the modification and that modification is repeated exactly the same way the next time you do an assessment so that you appropriately benchmark where they are and can track progress by doing the exact same test. You might have clients that are youth clients and youth clients, these aren't designed for youth clients, this is designed for standard clients. Uh, and so working with kids is going to alter how some of these are done. Also, the younger the kids, the more enjoyable these probably need to be. So make sure you incorporate fun. And I'm gonna say not just with kids. Make sure you're incorporating some fun with your clients as well, because uh, yes, yeah, some people may want to, they, they won't enjoy it and they'll be okay with it because they want those outcomes so bad. But the majority of people are so not interested in working out or exercise. And if we're not making this an enjoyable experience for them, then we're not doing anything to support that process and we may lose some clients. So as fun as you can keep it while still being on task. What if the clients are older and their abilities to move and to function, the range of motion that they have, their ability to not jump or jump, the strength assessments, all of these things need to be altered and create modifications for that population. And then prenatal clients, so people that, um, that are pregnant and you know, as postnatal to that as well. So right after they finish uh, giving birth up to a certain amount of time, being very, very aware that, um, that there's something really, um, I don't know, I would say um, significant that happened in their body. And so the prenatal client and the postnatal client you wanna be aware of. Older clients, youth clients, overweight and obese clients, consider those modifications and work within their capabilities. Keep it fun, keep it light, and keep them training. That has been the second part of the Domain 3 uh, assessment, Section 4. We reviewed Chapters 11 and 12. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being a part of this particular podcast. And if you are interested in learning a little bit more about what we're doing. Go back and listen to some of the previous podcasts because we're going uh, domain by domain through the entire study of the NASM CPT-7. So for those of you who are studying for this, we have more episodes to come. If you're taking the test between now and the next one, good luck. I'm sorry you didn't get a chance to hear any of these episodes leading up to it. I hope that it works out for you. I also hope that you take this time and opportunity, you made it to the end of the podcast, to like, subscribe, share, all of that stuff. What you do and your feedback helps us at NASM get a little bit better at what we do. So thank you so much for your time. You want to reach out to me directly, you can do so on Instagram at dr.rickritchie or email rick.ritchie at nasm.org. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast. <laughs>